Welcome to Radio Kemp. You are listening today to our Call to Action podcast series, where transformative ideas from our annual Call to Action conference come to life. Join us on our journey to change child welfare to a child and family well-being system rooted in community, economic, and social justice. Welcome and welcome back. This is the Call to Action podcast series on Radio Kemp. I'm Kendall Marlowe with the Kemp Center for the Prevention and Treatment of Child Abuse and Neglect. And thank you, each and every one of you, for joining us. And if you're following this series, thank you for journeying with us and joining us again. We're blessed today to spend some time with a friend from across the pond. Sharon Inglis, I think I say that just in part because it's fun to say across the pond. But could you start us out with... Where are you? Where are you today? Where are you coming from? Of course. Um, Good evening, Kendall. I'm Sharon Inglis, and I am here in Leeds in the United Kingdom, which if you think about um, what the United Kingdom looks like, it looks like a big rabbit, and we're about halfway down. Uh, We're in the north of England, but if you think about the whole United Kingdom, we're about halfway down the rabbit and we're kind of central. So it's the north of, of, of England and it's a beautiful city. If any of you are thinking of holidaying, don't go to London. No, go to London, of course. But then come up to Leeds. It's a fabulous place. We'll do that. We'll do that. Uh, Sharon, we're here in part, we're here in complete part, um, in response, I should say, to that conference session, the call to action conference session. And the session was called Restorative Approaches to Child Welfare. Sharon, we're going to talk about you and your journey to this work and get to know you and your work a bit. But can we just start with this business of restorative approaches? In the U.S., many of us have heard of restorative justice in the context of juvenile justice systems. But when we're talking about child welfare, what is this restorative business? What are we restoring? Nice question. Um, And it's one of those questions that I suspect if you ask any of the people in the work, you'll get a slightly different answer. Um, Restorative justice was was a response to um, the the, the criminal justice system and how how it um, impacts communities in a really negative way and um, doesn't pay attention to uh, the needs of communities both people who've been affected by harm and by um, the wider community. And so um, restorative justice was really a return to some of our ancient traditions and cultures. I mean, very, um, very, really informed almost entirely by indigenous populations around the world um, saying we need to do things differently. This isn't working for us. Um, and bringing together people who are who are impacted by a harm, or you know whether that's a crime, or whether that's um, the impact within a community of something that's changing. So um, restorative justice was something that I was very involved in back in the um, late late last century. <laughs> um, but <laughs> in, but in terms that, of, <laughs> I want you to tell us a story because one of the things that's mentioned in the session is the power of story, the power yeah. of story. So, so what's yours? What, what, what brought you to this work? Well, I was working, um, I was working in children's services in the UK um, back in the 1990s and um, watching, um, 
watching family group conferences evolving here in the UK, we got them in around, I think, probably about 1991. Uh, I was lucky enough to be working with Paul Nixon, who was also on that call that you were talking about. And um, we... Uh, Howard Zare talks about family group conferences as a restorative approach, a reconnection of families, putting families at the centre of decision making. And um, I mean, that links directly, doesn't it, this idea of restorative. We we know that children are born into, into families, into a system of their own. They're nested within their family. Um, the family is nested within a community. A community is nested within a city like, like Leeds. And, um, our approaches to child welfare in this country have been for some time now um, uh, about an expert model, about we know best as professionals. Um, we, uh, we have a system of working which is about telling families you're getting it wrong and you need to do something differently. And those that's pretty much, I think, where uh, the restorative approach helps us start to think about things differently. We, we think about individual pathology, don't we? we What's do. wrong with you that we can fix yes. as opposed to that broader societal context, don't we? Yes. Well, we think about particularly in child welfare, welfare we look at what's wrong with mum and her parenting. Um, we don't think about, well, and that leads us down a certain path, doesn't it? It leads us down a path of pathologizing, but it also leads us to responsibility and accountability to be with mum regardless of her circumstances. So um, she may be living in um, dire poverty. She may have a mental health issue. She may have um, relationships that are violent. She may be, um, you know, just having an absolutely dreadful time. And what we, our systems do is to focus on mum and try and fix whatever's going on for her or fix her. Um, we're not great at thinking about the context and how do we fix the context. And a restorative approach encourages us to think about um, the context within which she's living and her circumstances. It encourages us to think about the relationships um, that that are around her. So um, in a in a normal uh, systemic approach around child welfare here in the UK, uh, we are really great at multi-agency working, working with partners. And that's really, really important. Um, but if you look at plans that are made up for um, for children in, in difficult circumstances, most of those are plans that are made by a system for a system. So I often look at uh, child welfare plans that are entirely focused on, A, what is mum going to do to change her circumstances? Some of yeah. that's realistic, but it's not. And then it focuses on um, our processes, our policies, um, the systems need um, to make sure that all of it's covered. And at no point really, very often, do we think about what's the context of mom's life and the context of the family or of the community in which she's living. So we talk about being relational and um, in in children's social work um, a lot, but we're not often thinking about what are the relationships on the ground for mum? Where can we build and support her community? Where can we um, strengthen the relationships within her family? Um, Do we even acknowledge that mum has a family around her who are probably supporting her very effectively? We pathologise mum and we don't think about um, how can we support and help her? Because we're the the experts. We're the experts. We know how this works. Well, we are. And, and, you know, it, 
I would I wouldn't want people to think that um, social workers aren't experts. They are. They work really damn hard at making sure children stay safe. But they they work within a system with which is just as pathologizing actually, and um, and it's really difficult for them to break out the cycle of we. I've got forty cases, and actually I don't have time to go and sit with mum and think about who's in her family to work through these issues and how can I strengthen that community. They need to um, they need to consider what's going on the computer, and uh, how do they keep children safe today? Not in the next five years, but today. What are they going to do? So we've got a system that doesn't support the kind of work that we've been talking about in this series, which is how do we engage and reconnect communities and families um, in a way which is going to be helpful. There's trust there, right? Relationships have a lot to do with different forms of trust. Mm-hmm. Do we trust these families? <laughs> Are we willing? Isn't there some risk? Um, on the one hand, Families have been raising kids for thousands of years successfully. We know this, Sharon, because we're here. We're here. Yes, and we wouldn't we be here if that process <laughs> had not been successful over the millennia. Yeah. It's actually, isn't it? One of the and this was, I think, mentioned in one of the sessions. It's child welfare that came up with this new idea that government was going to raise kids. Families have actually yeah. been figuring out this for a long time. But we got to trust them. We got to trust them. Are we willing to do that? I, well, I think. I think trust goes both ways, doesn't it? My uh, my wonderful colleague, Nigel Richardson, uh, who was director here in Leeds uh, several years ago, um, I heard him on Radio 4 the other day, which is one of our national broadcasters, and um, he was saying, isn't it ironic that we are a helping service? We're the only helping service that nobody wants to help them. Families don't trust us. Um, and, and I'm not saying that about every social worker. Goodness me, there's some amazing work going on with some fantastic social workers in this country. But um, but I think societally, uh, families don't trust us because, you know, we have power. And also, um, government doesn't trust social work. There is never a point in this country, I don't know if it's the same uh, in, international, in an international context, um, but nobody ever says, aren't social workers great? You know, everybody talks about teachers and nurses, um, but actually social work is not something that very many politicians say is a positive thing. Why is, why is that? And is there anything we could do about that or, or is that our fault or what's up with that? Well, I, I, love, I, mean, the, I love teachers and nurses, too. What is I it, do, too. What is it diff- <laughs> what's different about the child protection social worker in the eyes of the family? I think in the eyes of the family, of course, they have um, families perceive they have a level of power to remove their children. And of course, at some level, they do. They go to a court and say, this is the evidence uh, that we need to remove a child if that's absolutely necessary. Um, I think increasingly, certainly in the UK, we're seeing record numbers of children coming into care. And um, and families are really scared that, that when a social worker turns up at their door, um, that that's what's good, that's going to be the outcome. So it's it's really important that we think about not only do we trust families, but how do we build a relationship with families so that they can trust us as a system to do what's best for not just the safety of that child today. And that's really important, but actually in the long term, you, you've mentioned you know governments bringing up children. You know I'm not sure there's ever been a time when we've done that very well. Um, certainly not in the UK. We've got, you know, years and years and years of 
evidence that suggests that children do very badly in our care system. And uh, not all, of course, some children have, have been taken from families for really good reasons, uh, for, for immediate safety. Uh, and of course, that's really important that we have a place of safety for those children. But long term, government care is not the place for children to thrive. Um, we've got masses of evidence to suggest that's the case. So my question would be, why are we doing more of it? Um, that's a real problem, I think. Taking so, a child into care today might be necessary, but we can't just decide that we need to keep them there forever. And we need to go back and rebuild and rethink of, uh, how do we get them back into their family? So how do, how do we change this? And, and I'd love it if you could start at the case level. I think I shared with you part of what I do is to train caseworkers who come into mm -hmm. this field. And they're going to be knocking on a family's door next week, uh, yeah. not knowing what's on the other side of that door. Mm. How does this more restorative practice look like on that case level? What would you say to that frontline caseworker in Leeds, in my hometown of Chicago, uh, in Denver, near where I am in today, where I am today, uh, or in Perth or wherever it may be? Um, what does that frontline caseworker do differently today that would embody this restorative approach? Well, I mean, I'm in endangering of, um, I'm in danger of, of giving advice to, to a professional who's incredibly brave, knocking on people's doors, not knowing what's on the other side. So, so this comes with a caveat, really. I guess um, the way in which our system encourages social workers uh, to behave with families is, is in a kind of a, um, in a very professional way, um, which is measured um, at every level. Um, and I think that's very hard for workers to, to get, to, for me to say to a worker, you need to connect with a family. It just sounds so ridiculous. Of course they connect with families. Um, they're not given time to connect with families, but, but actually that's what, that's what most families want to do. They need to learn to trust. We've just said the trust goes both ways. Um, when I was knocking on families' doors, um, it takes time. And social workers don't really don't have that time. So um, I'm talking to social workers every day about um, how do you how do you have all of this power and authority in the eyes of families? I know that's not how it feels to social workers. How do you have all of this at your back and still connect with families in a way which means we're going to get the best outcomes from them? Um, because without that trust, that's really difficult to do. Um, it's interesting so, that you highlight the element of time there because it was mentioned in the session, the system wants speed and efficiency and control. Yeah, yeah. And families need love and connection. And yeah. that takes time. Yeah, absolutely. And and I guess, you know, the my shift, my you were saying about my own journey, my shift has been from working with families and seeing with families who come together with all of their um, cultural wisdom, their history with one another, good, bad, and indifferent. Um, and they come together and put aside or any difficulties they may have and say, what can we do to support this child? What can we do to support mum? What can we do to support dad, even though he might be in prison or, um, you know, whatever set of circumstances they're in, families come together um, and say, we need to make this situation better for children. And um, I spent years, probably 20 years, working with families in that way. And 
I don't think I ever saw a family who said, no, this doesn't interest me. I'm not interested in thinking about my nephew's children. Um, families just don't do that. They, they come out of the woodwork and they say, yes, they step up and say, yes, we want to do this. Um, but we need to give them the opportunity to do that. And as a system, of course, we don't do that. So my interest now, I guess, I, I work less with families. Um, and now I work with systems who want to do that. And are trying. To so how does it, yeah, let's go to there. Let's go there. How does it happen in a system? How does it happen in a system? Now I am someone who's running uh, this system for a county, for a state mm-hmm. in the U.S. or anywhere in the world. How do I change? I, if we're understanding how that human real and risk-taking relationship happens between an individual worker and uh, say a parent. And and because you're talking to us from Leeds, we get to say mum instead of mother or mom. And we just, I want to say we love saying that too. We do. Um, I I want to help a mom. I do. Just hearing that, it makes me want to help her. Um, How do we change our system then? So not just that individual interaction with a worker, uh, is this more human thing um, that is empowering a family? How do we change the system? Well, and I guess I don't have the answer to that. I guess all I can say is that having worked with families in this way, now I work with agencies in this way. So um, what we worked out in the, in the late 90s, really, I think early 2000s, was when you are um, working with children, child welfare systems, and you've got this lovely piece of family group conference, family decision-making work going on, um, it often sits within a system that's very punitive. So the system itself is very punitive. It's punitive to his staff. Um, Government is very punitive to those systems. We have an inspectorate that's very punitive in the UK. Um, And of course, what happens is is then what happens is we we end up being punitive to families. So we have this lovely family group conference model that sat on the outside of the system and bringing that in and saying, um, how do we make this fit into this very punitive system? Of course, what happens is um, once you start working, the social workers I've worked with, once they've started working with families in this way, go, why can't why is it different over there? Why can't we do this here? Why so, isn't um, our meeting like that? <laughs> why isn't our meeting like that? So, I mean, literally um, getting getting organisations to think about their meeting processes, how they behave with their staff, how they behave with each other. And initially I started working with organisations who wanted very often directors who would say, come and sort out the people in my, it's the social workers that are the problem. Um, and, and, and can you come and sort them out? But of course, what you have to start with is senior leadership and you have to start talking about how do we talk about our staff? How do we behave with one another? I'm always intrigued when I first start working with a senior leadership team around um, how they, are they respectful of their colleagues? Are they, what's the, what's the conversation about the difficulty within this, um, within this team? And that trickles down throughout the whole organization. So um I think that we have to be restorative with one another before we can even hope that we're going to have frontline workers behaving in that way with families. Um, I mean, many, many workers are inherently like that with families, but they work within a system that really isn't. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. I, I know that in the business world, they're aware of that. They're aware that they have a corporate culture yes. and they try to orient their corporate culture if they're smart to yeah. serve their customer. 
Yes. Well, we've seen a huge growth, haven't we, in um, just in the past 20 years of mission statements and lists of behaviors oh, yeah. that organizations really love to have. Oh, we and- are missioning and visioning <laughs> left and right. <laughs> there is no lack of mission and vision statements on every website that you'll see. But what you've just said earlier, Kendall, was um, children need to be nested in a family where there is love and care. And it's no different for any of us. We want to be in organisations that love and care for us. I mean, you know, even as unprofessional as that sounds, you can walk into an an organisation and know about the relationships that are going on in the system. Just You you can. can feel them. Can, can I and share so how do we give permission to for for um for agencies to say actually this is really important relationships here are really important to us we need to think about how we connect with one another before we begin to think about how we connect with families um because if it's not healthy and supportive in the senior leadership team or in the in, in the layer below that then it's not going to be healthy anywhere so it's really inviting people to start thinking about what do you need as human being in this organization? Because if we start paying attention to that, then that makes a huge difference to, to how we work with families. It's, it's, it's hugely powerful stuff. Um, I know that our workers are looking for that. I can tell you that. Uh, they feel very alone yeah. uh, and overwhelmed yeah. by both all of the things that they're expected to master uh, and then this enormous responsibility that's placed on them. Yeah. I was talking to um, a really beautiful group of social workers this week who uh, we were just in a conversation about restorative practices, actually. And uh, somebody just said in the middle of the session, I'm feeling really sad about the bone wearying poverty that I'm seeing this week in the families that I'm working with. And um, what I saw in that circle of people was everybody trying to um, squashing down the sadness and the pain of that. Um, <laughs> and I kind of had to roll back. And whilst you don't want to, um, you don't want to sit in that sadness and pain for very long, but it's very real. And for so many of the workers that I'm working with, you know, it is bone wearying sadness. That's, there's a lot going on in the world at the minute. And um, how do we support those workers uh, in that work? Because that's very, very tiring. People burn out very quickly. Um, And we have to pay attention. We have to pay attention to it. I think Sheldon Spotted Elk was the one in that conference session who talked about you can't help your client find justice if you're not in proximity to your client. Entirely. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what you were just talking about, I think, in terms of Mm. understanding that worker was in proximity with her client and having a hard time being that close, but needed to be that close. eh? And I think probably the way that we've managed that in the past, certainly in the past two or three years, is to try and, given COVID, but try and pretend it's okay and uh, we're professional and we disconnect very often from that because it's too difficult and we don't have anybody else to help us with it. Um, But of course that further fractures the relationships with communities and families and with devastating impact. So we really have to find a way of reconnecting some of those dots. What's your call to action 
to all of us as we as we as we close here. Um, this audience that is listening to you now, again, it actually is from all over the world, and you've got everything from veteran physicians with decades of experience to a frontline worker who just started yesterday in Leeds. <laughs> and they're now heading into that beautiful city, but I bet they're going to find uh, plenty of challenges when they head out. What's If this is the call to action conference um, and the call to action podcast series, what do we need to do? What's your call to action to all of us? I think it's about, um, I think it's about connection. I mean, really understanding somebody else's story. Um, the idea that we can walk in somebody's shoes is, is not always terribly helpful because we look at those stories through our own lens, uh, especially through a professional lens. Um, I think if, if somebody tells us we are honoured with people telling us their story, even if it's part of an assessment that we're having to write down, we have to find ways of personally connecting with that. And, um, and I think the, the idea that a professional relationship means you can't connect is possibly where we're going wrong. We need to deeply understand the context and circumstances that people are living in. And then, you know what, if people ask for help, give it to them. Thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you, Sharon Inglis. And thank you, listeners, not just for being with us, but for what you're about to do for kids and their families today. Keep moving, keep improving, and join us again soon. This has been the Call to Action podcast series on Radio Kemp. Join us again soon. Thank you for listening to Radio Kemp and our Call to Action podcast series. We invite you to continue to be an active part of changing child welfare. For more information about how to stay connected with Kemp's efforts, you can learn more about our annual virtual Call to Action conference and this monthly series at www.kempconference.org. Again, that's www.kempeconference.org. Until next time.